listening to That'll Preach. I uh, appreciate you guys tuning in. We've got a great interview today. We have uh, Father Michael Petty. He is the Canon for Discipleship at St. Peter's Anglican Church in Tallahassee, Florida, right here where I am. So we're actually having a live interview, which is really refreshing instead of being over Zoom, just seeing a real live face. And uh, he's got an awesome uh, office here with a, a brilliant library. Uh, full of books. So it's a really, really great space. So thank you for letting me uh, join you and uh, appreciate you being uh, on uh, part of this uh, podcast. Sure, Brian. Happy to be here. So one of the things that uh, I love about your title, you're the canon of discipleship, which makes it sound like, you know, you're like a war general or something like that. And maybe a spiritual war general, something like that. But uh, discipleship is really the big part uh, of your um, of your title. And uh, so talk a little bit about what you do as a canon of discipleship just in your ministry, uh, what that looks like, what you're over, how you think about that in terms of your ministry here at, at St. Peter's. Sure. Yeah. My, uh, you know, my, my, my job has many kind of facets, but um, the big picture is I'm responsible for our work here to form disciples at St. Peter's, I'm primarily working with adults. And so that takes place at like a whole variety of ways. So um, at its most basic, I'm in charge of what we call our, our adult catechumenate. So this is adults preparing either for baptism or the sacrament of confirmation. Uh, so that's kind of where we start. Uh, but then we sort of move on out. So, you know, someone's been baptized, they've been confirmed. The question is, okay, what's next? Um, and that takes, we, one of the things we've tried to do here at St. Peter's is we've tried to develop our, everything we offer basically is conformed around four sort of themes. So everything we do is aimed at either one, um, helping people to develop uh, a regular pattern of prayer and worship. Uh, second, helping people to develop a regular pattern of Bible study and, and formation. Um, second, helping people to uh, recognize and then use their spiritual gifts. And then four, uh, equipping people to be what we call public witnesses for Christ in the world, however they may be placed. Uh, so everything we do Everything we offer, whether it's a class or an event, has to fit into one, at least one of those four categories. So when you use the term discipleship, and there's another term that's used a lot, the idea of spiritual formation. Yes. Um, are they the same thing? I mean, if, if, if they're not, how would you, how would you define what uh, discipleship is? How would you define what spiritual formation is? and maybe how they relate together, at least in your mind and how you think through your yeah. ministry. Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think in my, as I've, the longer I've been at this, I've come to realize that discipleship and spiritual formation really are essentially the same thing. Um, it's probably important to recognize, right, that the term discipleship historically has been primarily a term that has been used among in a new sort of evangelical Protestant context. So you won't find the term in Orthodoxy. You won't find the term in Catholicism. Uh, you wouldn't have found it like even like in any Reformation figure, right? So John Calvin never preached any sermons on discipleship, but that didn't mean they weren't interested in it, right? Right. Um, so here's the way I would here's the way I would put it: 
Discipleship and spiritual formation are essentially the same thing because what both of them are fundamentally about are equipping people not just with the necessary knowledge of the Christian faith, but equipping them to sort of like develop integrated lives that are fully Christian, right? And that, that involves the totality of who we are. So it's not just a matter of, okay, do you know this catechism or you know scripture? We hope they do. It's also a matter of, okay, how do I, how do I integrate my whole life into a pattern of discipleship? All the way from the way that I understand my vocation, uh, if I'm married, how does that fit in? If, I've, if I'm raising children, how does that fit in? How do I look at my possessions? Um, how do I understand and use my spiritual gifts? All that is part of discipleship or spiritual formation. Um, and so I think it's really important to kind of understand the, that those really are like overlapping terms. What, what makes it difficult to integrate those things in our lives? I think that's a great kind yeah. of word you use, but what are some challenges you've seen as you minister to people in terms yeah. of forming a Christian life? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things we have to recognize is that basically, given the culture we're in, everything works against it. Sure. In the sense that, right, that we're, we're constantly being catechized by our culture, whether it's social media or advertising or movies or whatever, we're being catechized to live in a certain way. Um, and that way, I think, you know, briefly described is, you know, basically uh, life is essentially about uh, professional success, uh, prosperity, how much you own and social status. Um, and those are obviously are like very powerful messages. They're thrown at us all the time. And, you know, we're going to kind of be in the in the in the in the business of having to resist them constantly because it's constantly being thrown at us. So the question I think is here, well, how do we how do we understand ourselves as Christians? And I think, you know, from my from in my way of understanding, the way to do that is to begin with baptism. In baptism, we die to this life and we're reborn into Christ. And that means we're supposed to kind of think about ourselves in a very, very different way. So uh, if you're a Christian, if you've been baptized, the, fundament, the thing that's fundamentally true about you is not what you do for a living, not what school you went to, not what neighborhood you live in, not what school you, your kids go to, not what kind of car you drive. What's fundamentally true about you is that you are part of the body of Christ. That defines who you are. It also defines the ultimate purpose of your life. And the, the, the job of the church is to help us live into that over and over and over again, recognizing that, it, you know, at our various life stages, we're going to have to deal with different issues that get in the way of living out that vocation. Quick story. Um, a number of years ago, I was reading the alumni magazine of the college that I went to, and there was a, you know, which is something, this is why we, it's something you sh we should all not do. Um, so I was reading a brief article about a guy that had graduated a year ahead of me. I, I knew him fairly well. We never really liked one another, though. <laughs> and the, the, the article featured the fact that he had just given the college a gift of $2 million because he'd become phenomenally, phenomenally successful in like a software startup. At this point, you know, I was, you know, I was a, a, a church rector 
you know, making, you know, $45,000 a year. And I, I found myself immediately asking myself the question, good heavens, what have you done with your life? That is, I felt like really unsuccessful. And, and what that did was, right, it was kind of like an eye-opening experience. That's like, when you asked for a raise. Yeah. That's when you asked yeah, for a raise, right? right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, <laughs> inspired you. <laughs> I, you know, I came to a truth about myself, and that is I'd imbibed the whole sort of gospel of success, you know, that, that my culture was teaching me. So I just offer that as a quick example of how, you know, how successful our sort of secular cultural catechism can be unless we resist it. And it's one of those things, it's like a fish in water. Like yes. you, don't, you don't even realize, a fish doesn't know what water is. It's just everything that he exactly. breathes in. And it is hard because sometimes when you think about formation, I mean, being formed, it's it happens over time. And you're not even aware of it until these kind of moments of clarity where you're like, I just live in a certain way that I'm not even conscious of that just is sort of influenced by the things I take in and social media and so forth. Exactly. And you can't like just think your way out of it. I think that That's was right. kind of a, an enlightening right. moment for me where it's just like, you just can't think your way into a Christian. You can't just know the right thing. It's important, but there's something more to it. Yes. Um, what about for your own personal life? Uh, could, could you share maybe some key experiences or milestones for you in terms of when you realized, oh, wow, like I, I need spiritual formation or here are some ways that spiritual formation or adopting these practices has really shaped me in significant ways. What, what kind of got you interested even just in this realm in general? Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah. I, uh, you know, I came from a background where spiritual formation really was pretty much absent. Uh, so both my church background and my seminary background, um, that whole element was absent. Um, I came from uh, a fairly sort of like liberal Protestant theolo uh, theological background um, and the emphasis there was sort of like fitting in to the culture. Uh, and I think I, I found myself, especially like in my first five or so years of, of parish ministry, that that whole way of thinking was not only not helping me, it also wasn't enabling my ministry in any significant way. So um, my first couple years of ministry was spent doing, doing campus ministry with um, uh, medical students. And then um, I went to a, uh, a large downtown church. And, and just those two experiences, I think, taught me that, you know, we've done like a really, really poor job of forming people. But I also recognized that I was poorly formed as well. Hmm. Uh, and, and part of, you know, for me, the, you know, one of the eye-opening moments was I found myself, you know, like getting like really discouraged um, because I, I like I had a sense that I wasn't like successful in quotation marks. Right. And that got me to think, well, wait a minute, you know, wh where's your understanding of success coming from? You're 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 thinking about your own life in terms that are not substantially Christian. And so that, for me, that was sort of like a really eye opening experience. And it's like, OK, what well, you know, it's kind of like the old thing. Right. Well, if you don't have it, right, you can't give it to other people either. Right? So I, right. I, 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 here I am, you know, I've gone to the, you know, what supposedly was a really great seminary. I've been in ministry for six years. And yet, you know, I'm, I'm missing a hugely important emphasis, like even in my own life. 
And so it, it was it was something of a crisis. The money thing and the, the money and that being tied to success, I think, is a big thing. I think we all feel that. And then you also, though, I don't think most people aren't like, oh, yeah, you want to be like some billionaire real estate mogul or whatever. But, uh, you know, you talk about the guy who, you know, you're like, well, what am I doing with my life? But, you know, can't you have both? Can't you can't you have a really nice bank account and be spiritually <laughs> formed, you know, and and. and but I think money, it is a tricky thing because you don't want to demonize money. Right. But I don't know if we're always honest about how much it really drives our lives, yes. even when we're good Christian people who know that you shouldn't become greedy. Yes. You know? And uh, so uh, what was it like, you know, after, you know, you found yourself being like, what am I doing with my life? What started to change? What were some things that you started practicing or... Uh, things you start to understand that really start to chip away at that particular kind of um, realization of how you've been formed. Yes, yeah. I think I think what what happened for me, and I'm I'm you know looking back, I'm actually glad that that crisis occurred because it it, it resulted in my life improving in some substantial ways. But I think what I found is, is that first of all. I began to develop a new appreciation for things that I already had. And for me, one of those things was the Eucharist. Um, so in our tradition, right, um, we celebrate the Eucharist every Sunday. And the idea is that, among other things, in that sacrament, um, Christ is giving himself to us, right? Um, his life is marked by his own perfect offering of himself to the Father. And we one of the graces of that sacrament is, is that we're enabled then to sort of follow after his own perfect self-offering. And so what that did for me is I recognized how little of myself I was actually offering. Um, mm -hmm. And that, that, that really forced me to kind of rethink uh, a lot of my priorities and, and, and a lot of a lot of what I did. Another thing that changed for me was um, I, I really developed uh, a deep and abiding appreciation for um, deep reading and deep reflection on Scripture. So one of the first things I did that I think had a huge impact on my ministry and, and, and on myself is um, I began to, wherever I was, I've done this in a number of contexts, of, of develop, uh, begin a group of people who were committed to sort of like reading through um, the whole of Scripture together over a period of time. And I found that doing that, reading it in community, reflecting on it in community, asking ourselves like really difficult life questions, that that was one of like the most form form formative and formational things that's happened to me personally, but also happened to other people around me that I was responsible for. So reading scripture over time with other people communally yes. was a really kind of shaping thing. Absolutely. Yes. And, and I think a, a key part of this, you know, um, I think, you know, um, one of our, one of our difficulties in, in reading scripture is that we've kind of been catechized to think, right, that our job is in effect like to have scripture answer our questions. Uh, I think what, what, has to, what has to happen is we need to get to the place where actually scripture questions us. It calls us into question uh, and it calls our presuppositions into question. 
it calls our kind of like American lifestyle into question. It calls our priorities into question. That's when the reading of scripture becomes really, really fruitful and really formative. What are some ways that you promote that in, in a Bible study? Um, so just thinking about questions that are phrased a particular way. Do you do you read it a certain way? How do you make that a practical thing in your in your group? Yeah, I think you know there there are different ways to do this. Um, uh, the thing that I found that that's been most helpful in, in my ministry and also for my own personal life is um, as we're reading scripture, right? To sort of think about okay, what is it getting at? So, for example, um, I've been I've been doing a long-term Sunday school class, we've been walking our way through Deuteronomy, basically a chapter per Sunday. So we've been, we've been at it for a while now. And obviously, right, you know, some of the, a lot of the Deuteronomic laws, right, do not have like an immediate practicality, right? And if you're going to try and push that, you're going to find yourself in trouble. So what I, what I've been trying to do over and over and over with each law is not just say, okay, we know this is an old, old testament law that has no application for us today. Here it is. No, let's, let's, I want you to know about it. Okay. We're, we're moving on. What I've tried to do in each case is I've tried to ask the question, okay, what is this law saying about how God wants us to be faithful to him? And so just to give an example, uh, there's a lot in Deuteronomy, right, about um, the need for um, compassion for the poor, right? Whether you're talking about, you know, the provision for gleaning, whether you're talking about the tithe, whether you're talking about the concern that's expressed for mm -hmm. widows, orphans, uh, and, and the sojourner. Um, and so I, the thing that I've tried to do is I've tried to say, well, you know, in our world, right, we often kind of split off like faith and a thing that we call social justice. And I said, what we're seeing here in Deuteronomy is that kind of split is like not allowable, right? In the, in the Old Testament, God doesn't allow us to sort of make a distinction between being faithful to him and being faithful to vulnerable people. That's not a distinction he allows. Hmm. <laughs> he also doesn't allow us to make neat distinctions between, you know, my private life and my public life. Right, right. Once again, we're pressed, you know, to, to really call into question some of the little, little constructs that we make for ourselves. Wow. I feel uh, the, the, the private public life connection. I mean, I think everybody kind of knows that, but it's never pressed. And I think that's interesting when you're reading a stud about the, you know, scripture and you're really allowing yourself to be pressed by it, to not make it some abstract thing. That's a, that's a, that's a fascinating, uh, that insight. Um, what about prayer? I mean, I think prayer is one of those things where if anyone asks you how your prayer life is going, you're always supposed to be like, well, could be better, you know? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Just, always, That's you know? right. So given that we are, we can all grow, always grow in prayer. Um, what does it look like to be formed in prayer? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. This is a, something that I've been kind of thinking about for the last couple of years. Um, this past summer, I, I taught a class, which I kind of just created um, that it's called um, uh, praying through the book of common prayer, or the idea was the book of common prayer as sort of like a guide to prayer. So we, what we did is we looked at important uh, pieces of the book of common prayer and kind of looked at how it actually is teaching us to pray as it's sort of like a school for prayer. I think that the, the, the big thing about prayer is this, 
that we often kind of have a notion that, um, you know, spontaneous prayer is somehow like the best form, right? That prayer is going to naturally like flow out of our souls. And that's just like not true uh, because, right, because as sinners, right, what sometimes flows out of our souls is sinful stuff. Yeah, anything but prayer. Anything but prayer. Yeah. So we have to, I think, I think as we, as we think about what prayer is, we have to realize that the ultimate purpose of prayer is to draw us closer to God. The act of prayer begins when we open our hearts and our minds to the presence of God, such that we're not only talking to him, which is a privilege, right? Uh, but also we're listening. And I think that can take place in a number of ways. One of the things I stressed in this class is, I said, you know, it's really important that we have like a balanced diet of prayer. So just as the Department of Agriculture, you know, has that like that food pyramid yeah. so that, you know, uh, sweets are not at the base of the pyramid, yeah, yeah, but yeah. at the top. Got a prayer pyramid. Uh, yeah, we need, a, we need a prayer pyramid. And so, you know, uh, part, of, part of that diet, right, right, is, you know, uh, most of us have the petitionary part of prayer down, sure. right? Sure. Uh, we're, we're really good at praying for stuff for ourselves. We need to work on the other dimensions. There's also like intercessory prayer, right? Um, are we praying for uh, the church? Are we praying for our leaders? Are we praying for the situation in the world? Are we praying for people who need healing? Are we praying for guidance for our public officials? On and on. The, the, the work of intercession is the work of every Christian because we're a priestly people, right? Part of our job is to pray for the world. Hmm. That's, what, that's what God's put us here to do. But of course, there's also right adoration, where we just adore God for who He is, not because of what He's done for us or or because He's given us things that we like, but we we simply adore God for being who He is. And there's also, of course, the prayer of thanksgiving, where we're right. we're, we're 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 working on that other really important thing, and that's gratitude, being genuinely grateful for everything we have, and not taking it any for granted. And the final dimension, we spent some time on this, confession. I think that, you know, one of the things that's been really important in the Anglican tradition is that uh, we're all supposed to kind of uh, engage in an act of confession each day, right? Kind of look back over the course of the day, uh, think about things we did or said that really fell short of the glory of God. And to be honest in confessing those things, right? And then asking God to give us the grace to be able to change. You know, uh, obviously, you know, we, we learn things about ourselves that way, right? Oh my gosh, you know, uh, I really do have a short temper. You know, sometimes I can be uncharitable. Um, sometimes, you know, instead of really listening to people, I'm thinking about what I'm going to say to them next. Um, those are all things that really like inhibit our Christian life. And so one of the things I tried to make, one of the points I tried to make in this class is, you know, the, the, the inability to pray in this kind of really deep and rich sense undermines our relationship with God and therefore also inhibits any real like discipleship taking place. So, so, so developing a prayer life uh, and, to, and, and to be able and to willing be willing to do that in sort of like a disciplined way is like really, really important. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I, you talk about confession. I just remember reading in 
the uh, like the daily office, the, the confession prayer of how you know it's like the things that we uh, that we ought to have done and things. Yes. We, we, but yeah, yeah, uh, I'm botching it right now. But it's basically confessing all the good things you should have done, not even just the bad things you did. Yes, <laughs> and exactly. that was really perspective, yeah, a perspective shift on what you confess of thinking like, oh, there were plenty of righteous things I should have done that I didn't, you know, sin of like omission, you know, and uh, that confession does kind of take you in those places where you have to really reflect on yes, yourself. I think that's, I mean, I think that's a tremendously important point. Um, so yeah, we're, we're confessing um, what, both what we've done and, and also what we, what we have, have not done. And I think the important thing about that, right, is, is that, we're being reminded here that confession isn't simply about our faults in terms of you know actual things, but also those opportunities that we that we've missed, right? Um, and it's really important things like you know, I really had the opportunity to call someone on the phone that I knew was in need and that I could have really done some good for, but I didn't because I was too busy, too lazy, whatever, right? And so I think what that does is it helps us to realize, right, we have all these opportunities for service, for building up the body of Christ, for being a graceful presence in the lives of non-believers. God's put all those before us. And very often, right, we don't take them. And it's important to sort of admit, okay, yeah, I, I, I didn't take this opportunity, but also to admit why. You know, I was afraid. I was lazy, I was too busy, and to be honest about that and then ask God to give us the grace to correct it. Now, you talk about listening. I mean, I mean that always in my mind, I'm like, you know, because sometimes people say, God told me, and you're like, in your mind, you're like, I don't think so, you know. Um, so when you, when you say, listen, God, are you listening for? A feeling, a voice, uh, a, a thought that pops in your head. I mean, when you try to get people to understand what that means and to keep them from some of the excesses, how would you how would you spiritually direct somebody in what it means to quote unquote hear from God? Yes, yeah, that's a good question, and I think this is kind of like another dimension of prayer that's present in the historic tradition. Uh, this is the prayer of contemplation. And contemplation, really, it can get somewhat complex, but at its most basic element is contemplation is us trying to put us in that moment of being utterly receptive to God. We're stilling our own kind of like inner, you know, our inner own inner workings, um, the little voice in our minds, it's constantly yapping, uh, you know, our, our like inner chatter. We're trying to still that so that we can listen for the voice of God. And I think it's really important to recognize, right, that that voice of God uh, may come to us in a variety of ways. It may come to us through scripture, and that's another important discipline, right? Co contemplation uh, with scripture, where God can use scripture to speak to us. Uh, but God, of course, also uses other people to speak to us as well. And I think, you know, one of the real, one of the important disciplines here is that we we gradually, I think, learn right to recognize that um, you know if, if God if the voice that we're hearing that we think is God telling us 
exactly what we really wanted to do already, right? That's probably not the voice of God speaking. <laughs> so we have to be careful sure. of, of not kind of like turning contemplation into almost like auto-suggestion mm -hmm. or, you know, mm -hmm. something like that. Right, right. Um, but I, I think, you know, obviously, right, you know, one of the one of the great privileges that we have as Christians is, is that the creator of the universe has invited us to speak to him, although he already knows the contents of our hearts and minds. He's given us the privilege of speaking to him. But an important part of that speaking relationship is the capacity to listen, to be receptive, um, to put aside our own priorities, our own thoughts, our own feelings, and just to be in that mode of receptivity. And so does it come as like thoughts in your mind or like, you know, I'm always wondering, like, I'm like, did I do it? Did it happen? You know? Yeah. Um, maybe you can overthink these types of things. But I think a lot of people struggle with like, what does it mean to be guided by God in, in life decisions, in, you know, re relational struggles, all these types of things? Yeah. Um, it, it, is it just that they're they're praying about it and suddenly an insight occurs to them or they go to a, the Bible and they open it and suddenly there's a passage there for them. I mean, how, how do we, how do we get a handle on, on what we should be looking for when it comes to listening? Yeah. Yeah. I think the, I think the, the, the important thing here is, is that listening is, is a posture. So think about the, the structure of the Lord's prayer, right? We don't begin the Lord's prayer immediately with our own needs, right? We don't get to our daily bread and, Forgiveness of trespasses until the very end of the prayer. We start with our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, hmm. your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Um, and I think what Jesus is telling us there, right, is, is that the first step in prayer is to kind of adopt like a God-centered posture. So the, the counsel that I give to people is, you know, don't try to emerge from any moment of contemplation, expecting that God's going to like give you specific instructions to do this, that, or the other, or give you this, that, or insight. Prayer in many ways is an act, but it's also a posture. Um, prayer is a posture of constantly being open to God and being available to him. And one of the most important things I think that, that can occur, right, is, is that one of, the most, one of the most important ways that God guides us is through something that Paul talks about in his letters a lot, right? And that's the gift of wisdom. And the gift of wisdom is something that comes over time. It's not instantaneous, right? Um, God, over a process of time, you know, can form and shape our minds and bring us to that point where we truly are wise. But to get there, right? We have to be open and we have to be receptive. Talk a little bit, a little bit about contemplation of Scripture. That was, you were, you were mentioning that. Is that um, what would that look like? How would you teach somebody how to be contemplative in terms of when they read the Word? Yeah, I mean, once again, you know, this is kind of like an ancient discipline. Um, it comes under a number of titles. the The most historic title, of course, is Lectio Divina, literally divine reading. And it can be it can be complex, but it can also be very simple. So um, you take a passage right uh, of of the Bible, and this requires patience, right? So you, the idea, right, is you're you're reading it less to sort of like understand it. Here's where we have to kind of like check our minds, especially those of us 
who like have been to seminary because you know we want to jump in and yeah. okay what does this term mean right, and, right, right, oh right, yes right. well in Hebrew it means this or you yeah, know yeah. we we, we kind of can do our we can undo ourselves that way right so our goal in lectio divina or con- or contemplation is to read a passage of scripture and this to, just to sit with it maybe read it again and read it again and then to sit with it and wait right and sometimes I think what happens right is you know some word or phrase in that passage of scripture is going to jump out in our minds and just kind of allow that word or phrase to sort of like ferment. Or another really wonderful way is, especially if this works like well with narratives, is to kind of place yourself in the narrative and ask some questions. Um, So for example, um, think about the uh, you know, the famous, uh, you know, the famous gospel narratives of Jesus arriving into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, right? And, and you know, people responding to him in different ways, you know. We, we put ourselves in that scene, right? And we can ask ourselves, okay, well, how, how would I have responded, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and this requires some honesty, right? Oh, you know, oh yeah, I, I would have been out there waiting for yeah, like branch. I, and, I, yeah. I, I, I know what's exactly what to do. I, I know what's going to happen. Exactly. It's gonna be fun. Yeah. So what we want to do is we want to we want to like we want to we want to put ourselves uh, in the scene. My favorite my favorite representation of this comes from uh, Rembrandt's painting of the Stilling of the Storm. So if you look at Rembrandt's painting, you'll notice that there are actually thirteen men in the boat. Hmm. Um, there's Jesus, there's the 12, but there's a 13th figure. And if you look really carefully, the 13th person is Rembrandt himself. He's painted himself in the boat and there's a look of utter horror on his face. And this is a way of saying, right, you know what? Had I been in that boat with the 12, I would have been scared stiff just like they were. Hmm. I, w- I would have not have been standing there saying, hey, guys, right, this is Jesus in the boat. We don't have anything to worry about. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he was brutally honest with himself, I guess. And, and I think what, what can happen right there is, is that by placing ourselves into these narratives, we can arrive at a, at a really significant level of, of self-knowledge, which I think is like really essential to the spiritual life, right? We really, in order to, in order to relate to God honestly, we have to have an honest understanding of ourselves and our own capacities and motivations. That honest understanding of self, that's a really great phrase. And it makes me think about, you know, when you're a, when you're a professional Christian, you know, in the clergy, it's, what, what, are some, what are some obstacles that are unique to being a minister when it comes to your own spiritual formation that you've experienced or maybe experienced in ministry yourself? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I, I mean, I think it's something that anybody who's in parish ministry is is going to face. Um, I think, to my mind, there are like two. There are two like big challenges. Um, one big challenge is that we sometimes feel that kind of we have to present this face or front of always being in charge, always being confident, always like knowing like the right thing to do. You know, everything's fine. Uh, <laughs> oh, and sometimes, right? Yes, I'm fine. You're right, Thank right. You. And you're you're really <laughs> Rembrandt in the boat. Yes, yes that's how you really you're are. Really Rembrandt yeah. in the boat. Yeah. yeah. So that's one thing. I think another thing is, um, be ha, w- wanting to have like a sense of uh, of of like accomplishment, 
you know, gosh, you know, I've done this and this and this and this. So I think these are both two obstacles. And I mean, I'm, I'll, I'll share kind of like how I've, I've uh, how I've tried to deal with them. Um, in terms of like the professional Christian, I think that's something that you really have to like set aside. Um, and on one hand, right, we, you know, we don't, there's the stereotypical, you know, like, you know, like uh, the clergy figure who often appears like in books and movies, who's like consumed with self-doubt and stuff like that. Yeah. We don't, we don't want that. Right. But I think that what, what we do want is we want to convey the idea to people that we're ministering to is, look, you know, I'm a disciple too. I'm learning to be a disciple. I'm learning to be a disciple with you in the church. And so there are things that I struggle with as well. And so, right, part of our job, right, as Christians and as members of the body, right, is to build one another up. And so you can build me up and I can try and build you up. I I don't need to try to put on like a front for you and you don't need to put on a front for me as your pastor. That really shouldn't be happening. Um, in terms of the, you know, wanting to see constant signs of, of productivity, I mean, obviously that's a natural thing. We all, we all want that. But I think once again, right, I think what we have to do, what we have to do is we have to kind of remind ourselves, look, um, and this is something that I, you know, this is something that's part of our, our understanding of ordination, right? So for Anglicans, ordination is a sacrament. So, you know, uh, when I was ordained to the priesthood, a bishop laid hands upon me and prayed the Holy Spirit would come upon me and equip me for the office and work of a priest in the church. And what that means for me is, is that Christ is going to work with me, in me, and through me in ways that I will never be aware of. And I need to trust that. So, you know, uh, I've had, you know, pastoral visits or situations where I felt like I was a failure, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. But what I have to do is I have to trust that if Christ really has given me this office in his church, he's going to be doing something through me, whether I'm aware of it or not. And my job is to trust that that's going to happen without necessarily seeing visible signs. And so I think that there's a sense in which, right, that when we're constantly worried about like signs of success, to me, that's sort of like a ding, that's sort of like a red flag going up saying that, you know, um, in many cases, right, for a lot of clergy, that's the sign that they're sliding into burnout. Hmm. Um, but it, it, it does raise, it does raise, I think, some, some red flags. That's where, that's where we need to have confidence, both in Christ's work in his body, but also in the work of the Holy Spirit uh, in ways that we don't know about and that we may never know about. Talk a little bit more about burnout. I mean, I think that, that's, that's a common discussion among pastors and clergy about burnout. And it's more than just too much on the schedule. There seems yes. to be something deeper. What, what do you yeah. think that deeper thing is? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think it, it's, it's, it's like a huge multifaceted problem. So, yeah, part of it is overwork over a long period of time. That'll get you to burnout. But I think it goes deeper than that, as you suggested. I, I think that for a lot of clergy today, I think one of the real causes of burnout is a doubt about our calling. And that's understandable, right? You know, we, we got, especially if you're, if you're in sort of like a prosperous, you know, upper middle class environment where you've got friends from college or graduate school, right, who are, you know, off, you know, 
earning six figure incomes and, you know, doing all this great stuff. And, and, you know, here you are <laughs> struggling with problems and going to meetings and visiting people in the hospital and, and, and getting paid seven figures. For yes, it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. right. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think that the, the big problem for a lot of clergy today is just fundamental kind of self doubt about our own calling. Um, I think it's a huge problem. And, and, and I think that there, I mean, obviously there's no real simple answer for it, but I think that this is one of the areas, right, where we as clergy really need spiritual formation as well, right? We really need to be in that posture of, okay, look, Christ has called me to this work. I can trust in him. I can rest in him. My, my fundamental sense of worth and value and importance is that I am serving the king of the universe. I may not be making a whole lot of money. We may be having like trouble making ends meet. Um, I may not be as successful as any of the people I graduated from college with. But that's, that's finally unimportant. I've been given the privilege of participating and serving the king of the universe. Who has who uses you know my little abilities and you know my my uh, you know my little life to accomplish his purposes, and I think you know that's that I think that's a cause for a sense of of hope, which I think is an, another important ingredient in this conversation, right? Um, if we don't have a fundamental sense of hope about the future of the church, we are going to get burned out. It's just a matter. It's not a matter. Of, it's a matter of when. That's really well said. I don't know if I've even heard that kind of approach to burnout, but that, I think that is true. Just the, the comparisons that your peers making more money, doing more, more quote unquote, important things in the world. And you're dealing with marriages falling apart and rebellious people and all kinds of drama. And uh, I guess maybe you can feel thankless at times. Yes. And you wonder if you're making any dent um, and, uh, but I can see why formation can be so helpful in reorienting and reframing how you're even analyzing your own life. Yes, I mean, I, I think, I think that, I think, I think that re, that phrase "reframing" is that is really is absolutely crucial, right? Because um, whatever you're dealing with, whether it's conflict in the church or uh, you know a, a broken marriage or someone dying, I think trying to consciously reframe every situation is hugely, hugely important for clergy, obviously for any Christian as well. And this is where spiritual formation comes in. I mean, I think one of the things that I've tried to do is uh, before I go into any situation, I try to pray for it. And I'm not just praying for the person, I'm also praying for myself, that I'll approach the situation in the right way. And I also try to pray for the situation afterwards as well. What I'm, what I'm trying to do for myself in those situations is to try to look at, at, is try to look at that situation from a different perspective. So the question doesn't become, okay, you know, Michael, were you successful, right? Did you make the dying person feel better? Did you fix their broken marriage? Did you resolve the church conflict? That's not the primary question. The primary question becomes, Michael, were you a faithful witness? Were you a faithful priest in this in this circumstance? Were, were you carrying out the office that you received when you were ordained? If you did that, you've done enough. Wow, that's a great perspective.
Uh, what, what about in general with your church, with your congregants? How do you promote spiritual disciplines within their life? I mean, and you maybe you can even bring in how you mentioned helping them use their spiritual gifts. That's an interesting concept. What does that look like to, to foster the spiritual formation and those habits in your church members? And maybe specifically what you're talking about when you talk about getting them engaged with their gifts. Yeah, um, that's one of the things we've been working on for about four or five years now. Um, so what we've done, and obviously there are you know a myriad ways of doing this, but one of the things that we've done is we've developed what we call a spiritual gifts discovery workshop, um, where whereby in this workshop um, we've got a number of, of materials that we have them fill out and work on, and then have two people who know them well also fill out. And so what that workshop is designed to do is it's designed to help them kind of identify and own their spiritual gifts. And we kind of have a, we've constructed a database of people in the congregation, their spiritual gifts. And so whenever we're thinking about any kind of ministry that needs to be done, we look at that database. And if, you know, if we need to find someone who needs to teach high school, Sunday school, okay, who's the gift of teaching and who has a love for youth? Or um, if we are needing folks for our Stephen ministry program, right? Who has the gift of empathy and compassion and discernment? Those are the people that we want to sort of direct in that way. On a kind of larger level, um, what we've tried to do is um, we've developed what we call a a parish rule of life. Um, One of the problems with spiritual formation is for a lot of people, it can sound like exotic and even like semi, you know, monastic. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, right, you know, right. spiritual formation, well, I'm not going to a monastery, right? right, you know, right, right. I'm married and have, you know, five kids. Yeah, yeah. You know? I like my Wi-Fi. That's yeah, right, yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. right. Uh, so what we've tried to do is we've, we've encouraged everyone in the parish, adult, child, youth, uh, to follow what we're calling the parish rule of life. And it's very general. So what we're doing is we're encouraging everyone to develop a pattern of living, which involves four things. Thing number one, um, a uh, regular pattern of prayer. Whether that's the daily office, the Book of Common Prayer, whether it's daily devotional, whether it's participation in a, in a prayer group, whatever. The idea here is that whoever you are, whatever life stage you are in, you prayer should be a daily discipline for you, whatever form that takes. Thing number two, um, a regular pattern of worship. Um, if you're a Christian, you should be you should be gathering with the body of Christ, and in our case, receiving the Eucharist every Sunday. If you're away from St. Peter's on vacation, find a place to worship where you are. You know, but 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 your worship life should be a regular thing. It shouldn't just be, hey, we're in town this weekend. I think we'll go to church. It sh- it should be a regular pattern. And then. We, we were, we've encouraged sort of two other disciplines, and that is we've encouraged folks to uh, find a ministry in the congregation that builds up the life of St. Peter's. That is, that, that, that somehow in some way contributes to the building up of St. Peter's, whether it's altar guild or teaching Sunday school or being a Stephen minister or whatever. And then fourthly, um, being involved in a in a ministry that's actually beyond the walls of St. Peter's, that is being part of God's mission 
beyond these walls out in the world. And so what we've tried to do is we've tried to say to people, look, you know, um, we're offering you kind of like these four disciplines. You decide how you're going to live into these. Whether you're, you know, uh, an adult who's married and has three children, or whether you're retired, or whether you're a high school student, or whether you're in sixth grade, you can you can do all these four things in your own way. What we're trying to say to you is that if you know that if you do them, you will find yourself formed by these practices in ways that will transform your life. I think good resources from theologians of the past or any any works that you would recommend if people want to read about growing in spiritual disciplines or church fathers or you know people in the tradition uh, what are some names that come to mind when you think about people who have influenced your thinking on spiritual formation yeah i mean i think that you know um probably the the the, the best thing to to do in, with something like this is to like keep things as simple as possible. So in my mind, there are like a couple of classics. So uh, Francis de Sales' um, little book, um, Introduction to the Devout Life, is really helpful. Um, and the other classic here is Brother Lawrence's Practicing the Presence of God. Um, and the neat thing about both these books is obviously they were, they were written in a certain context. And, you know, you kind of you kind of like have to find ways of getting beyond the context. But to my mind, the reason why they're so important is that they, they make a hugely important point. The spiritual life is not a kind of like semi-monastic, ethereal reality that in order to practice, you know, you've got to go off to some uh, retreat center or monastery miles away. The spiritual life is about the, is about the life we live from day to day to day. Um, your spiritual life has to do with how you treat your spouse, how you treat your kids, how you treat your coworkers, how you think about your money, how you think about the purpose of your life, how, how, how you're involved in building up the body of Christ where you are. All that's your spiritual life. Um, it comes down right to those two great, the, the, the summary of the law. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's what the spiritual life is about. How do you counsel somebody who's going through the dark night of the soul? You know, they're dealing with internal doubts. They don't feel the presence of God. They feel sort of an absence of God. Uh, what role do spiritual disciplines play in, in, in that kind of case? Yeah. Yeah, you know, the the whole, you know, there's obviously that long tradition of the dark night of the soul. I remember uh, when uh, Mother Teresa's memoirs came out and it, you know, she wrote about experiencing long periods where she felt the absence of God. And, you know, some critics kind of latched on that and were really critical of her. I think they, they actually got it all wrong, right? The point about her was that even though she went through long periods where she felt disconnected from God, right, she still continued with her work with the poor of Calcutta. And I think that's like a really important spiritual lesson, right? So whenever I'm talking with someone who's going through a dark night of the soul or just like a spiritual drought period, right, my counsel to always to them is whatever you're doing in terms of spiritual disciplines, keep on doing it. That is, that's your foundation, right? 
that's that that's where you're going to get nourishment and sustenance that's going to like sustain you through this period. And the other thing that I say, which is I think also important too, right, is that it's really important that we not see the dark night of the soul as like out like a punishment from God, right? I think the dark night of the soul could actually be used because I mean C.S. Lewis makes this comment in the Screw Tape Letters, which is another great like mine of spiritual counsel. Right? Remember, Lewis says you know that that one of the great things is that you know God's actually hidden Himself from some of His favorite people, mm-hmm. not to punish them, but to make them not like dependent upon His constant presence, right? Um, to enable them to like function with the ups and downs of life. Uh, and so it, it can be important to like use the dark night of the soul. But in the in, in when you're enduring it, right, not to give up your pattern of prayer, your pattern of reading of scripture, your pattern of worshiping. Um, I was talking to uh, a guy not too long ago who was kind of going through a period of doubt. And um, he I, you know, um, this is kind of one of these things where, you know, you you uh, find that, you know, God is actually like a far better counselor than you are because I said, well, you know, um, have there been some things that have really helped you? And he said, yes. He said, I found that one of the things that got that got me through my dark night of the soul was coming to church on Sunday and allowing the liturgy to carry me through that time. But I didn't have to do anything but I felt like carried, buoyed up by the congregation and also by God. And that was one of the things that enabled me to live through, you know, my, my little, my, my period of darkness and doubt. That is a great um, uh, description. So, yeah. So, I mean, I, mean, I, th- I think that that's, you know, once again, you know, obviously that's an example of like God doing things that we don't necessarily know about. Yeah, no, that that's, that's a great way of thinking about it. I think it, I know people who have expressed going through times of grief, having the liturgy, having the prayers there. It's like when you don't know what to say, it's nice to almost have that work done for you. And you can just kind of be guided into a place of prayer by these, by, by, by an order and a liturgy and just even being at church, you know, in, in, in a congregation of people, you know, that could be a very healing kind of, kind of experience. Yes. One of the things that I, uh, one of the points that I tried to make when I, you know, taught that class on the prayer book is, um, this is in the context of inter- intercessory prayer. So for us, right, every Sunday we have a series of intercessions where we pray for the church, the world, different kinds of people. And um, I was I was getting the group to see, you know, well, sometimes, right, um, we're unsure about how to pray for something or someone, right? Right. Someone's got cancer, you know, how, how do, are we supposed to pray for their healing? Are, are we supposed to pray for them to endure the sickness? You know, what's God's will in this situation? Sometimes we don't know. And so that's where I brought in that, you know, that wonderful passage from Romans 8, right, where Paul says, and it's kind of an overlooked passage where Paul says, right, that, you know, um, we, we don't know how to pray as we ought, but the Spirit intercedes for us uh, in, in groans too deep for words. And I think that's a really important point about prayer in the sense that, right, I think Paul's saying there that when we pray, when the church prays, when Christians pray, the Holy Spirit is praying alongside us. 
and he makes up for the inadequacy of our prayers. And that's, I think, I think, you know, Paul's trying to make the point right in Romans 8, right? This is one of like the great privileges of the children of God, that we don't really have to somehow think that our prayer life or our prayers are like adequate, like, did I get it right? That's really not our worry because in a, in a kind of like mind-blowing sense, God's like praying along with us and he's making up for the, for the inadequacy of what, of what we offer. It's a great, it's a great way to put it, you know, and I think that that's uh, just talking with you. I'm, I'm seeing spiritual formation as something to think about as, as, it's almost like it's what you're doing for yourself, but the more you talk about it, it's really putting yourself in sort of a posture for God to really start chipping away at you and really start forming you. He, you're not like spiritually forming yourself. He's the one doing that to you. And, uh, and it's probably helpful in ministry thinking that you're ultimately not the one that's changing people. Yes. You know, you're just trying to put them almost, you just want to try to put them in the position to be changed yes. by, by God who does it. I've heard, you know, I've heard a, a bunch of stories from people who took that spiritual gifts inventory workshop, got involved in some ministry somewhere and later, uh, you know, came back and talked to me. And this is kind of like a, almost like a, a set story, right? You know, I really didn't want to go to that spiritual gifts workshop. You know, I wasn't sure about the whole spiritual gift stuff anyway, but I went. <laughs> and then I got involved in this ministry, you know, and I was kind of unsure. But then, right, I got involved in it. And I started meeting the people in that ministry. And I began serving in that ministry. And in, in, in meeting those people, in working with those people, like God changed my life. So once again, I, I think that, you know, it's, we can easily make this whole spiritual formation process far more complicated than it really is. I think the truth is, is that if we're willing to invest ourselves in the life of the church, if we're willing to invest ourselves in the lives of our fellow Christians, if we're willing to invest ourselves in people out there, right, what we'll find is that God will transform us in that in ways that we could never expect and never anticipate. As well said, Father Michael Petty, thank you for joining us for this and your insights. That was really helpful. I think our audience is really going to appreciate the things that you said and uh, certainly appreciate uh, your work and the thoughts you put into it. So thanks for Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Brian. Appreciate you guys listening. If you guys uh, enjoyed this podcast, make sure you support it. You can uh, subscribe to it on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And you can also follow us on Instagram at That'll Preach Podcast. Make sure you share with your friends, get the word out. And uh, we'll see you guys next week.